Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews from shows that deserve your attention. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode six for June of 2016, and my name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about the impact of social media on fandom, as well as a couple of shows that we're watching this summer, which we'll reveal a little bit later in the show. Yeah, in fact, it'll become very apparent here, if if you didn't notice just in the episode title, that we're doing things a little bit differently here at Sci-Fi Fidelity. We're shaking it up. I think we realized, Dave, that our formula that we had been using had a finite ability to continue because we would eventually run out of shows and either repeat them or start talking about shows that we really didn't care about as much as the ones we started out with. And so we decided... We really enjoyed doing the discussion topics at the end. So why don't we just move those to the front? Those are more interesting anyway. And then we'll just add on the shows that we're watching at that particular part of the year and just highlight some of the things that we're looking forward to or that we've enjoyed uh, in the episodes that we've been viewing recently. Well, there is a third option. What's that? We could take the drug that they give to the super soldiers that enables them to stay awake for days on end. Uh-huh. <laughs> then we wouldn't need to sleep. So we could watch all these shows and we could keep up to date. And, you know, we would have a much bigger pool from which to choose. <laughs> That's a very good problem to have. Too much sci-fi on television. But, yeah, it can get frustrating a little bit. And, of course, we'll still have the interview at the end. Today we're going to be talking to Blake Neely, who is the composer for a lot of your favorite Superhero shows, The Flash, Arrow, Legends of Tomorrow, and Supergirl, all the DC properties. So that'll be a fun one to share later on. But before we get too far into it, for those who need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain segments, here are the time codes for today's topics. Showrunners on social media. 2.30. Outlander. 26.01. Preacher. 29.43. Blake Neely Interview. 3820. Well, so let's dive right into it, Dave, here with our discussion topic, which is a very controversial one. And it's interesting. We came up with this topic before it blew up on the web with regard to fandom and the problems on social media that it's been experiencing this year. Yeah, we've been talking about this for at least three, four, maybe even five months. And uh, obviously, The Hundred is the show that really blew up the internet and just you know, made it easy for us to move forward with that topic. Well, and what was so ironic is that we actually covered the hundred on this podcast before that controversial episode. And obviously we love the hundred and that was very controversial uh, for us uh, from a different standpoint, perhaps than the general population out there. But we do kind of see both sides of the issue and we'd like to 
go through some of that today and not just with the hundred, but with other shows that have active showrunners and actors on social media and what impact that has. Right. Well, one of the first things that I think you have to talk about, do we consider television an art form? Oh, sure. Or maybe a little bit older. Remember the moniker, the boob tube, which, (laughs) which obviously implied that there was not much of substance on television. And I don't think we really can call it the boob tube anymore, unless we're referring to how much cleavage is out there on shows. (laughs) That's right. In that case, well, maybe it is accurate. (laughs) So uh, if it's not artistic or if it is artistic, what impact does that have on what we're talking about here today? Well, I just think for me, if it is an art form, which I firmly believe it is, then I don't want the artist listening to what I have to say about his or her art and then changing their vision based on what I think. I love how you use the personal pronoun there so that you can place the burden on yourself. Because, yeah, you're right. We're not all artists and we shouldn't influence the artist's vision. But, of course, we're not just talking about ourselves. We're talking about our fellow fans as well. And some people can't keep their fingers out of the pie. Right. And now, look, I get it. They need to have their show succeed or else the show goes off the air They don't get money. I mean, I get all that. I'm not stupid and I'm certainly not naive. But then again, they're artists and it's a really difficult problem. And I guess you could say it's been this way since the medieval period when when artists had patrons and certainly the patron gave the artist some idea of what it is that that he or she wanted from the artist, but still. And it predates television, certainly. I mean, Arthur Conan Doyle, was greatly influenced in bringing back Sherlock Holmes when he killed him off by the angry readers of the Strand who wanted him back. So it's it definitely got a history that goes beyond social media, but what influence should it have? And the immediacy of the interaction is a lot different than it has been. Right. And clearly we've reached an age in which the artist at least allows the public to vent its opinions about the show, and in many cases, as you alluded to a minute ago, participates in the discussion online, which I'm not sure is such a good idea. I understand it, but I don't think it's a good idea. So yeah, I think Dave and I are going to be representing opposite sides of this argument because I definitely see the benefits of it more than the dangers. I do see the other side of the issue, and I think there are certain showrunners who have fallen victim to responding too much to their fans in ways that make it appear as though they will have a say and that they should have a say when perhaps that shouldn't be the case. Right. And I guess you could argue that the good showrunners, before they accept scripts, before they put episodes into production, have really weighed all the pros and cons and that that for whatever reason, there's less controversy surrounding their show. I mean, look, you and I cut our teeth with Simon Barry and Continuum. And while he was certainly very accessible, I guess you could argue he didn't need to defend his show. And he never did. And he never did. And he shouldn't. And and I think Simon Barry is a great example of how to do it right. <laughs> because social media, is it merely interacting with fans in a lighthearted manner? Because if that's as far as it goes, that's great. Because here as a fan, 
you feel so special that you're able to talk and have a conversation with someone who you really look up to and respect as an artist. Sure. And I get at times explaining creative decisions that you've made as the showrunner. But on the other hand, I would like that left up to my imagination. I, yes. I, again, that's, <laughs> it's one of the things that I loved about Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse on their Lost podcast is that they didn't answer every question. In fact, they answered very few questions. And in fact, they even joked about the fact that we're not going to answer that. Right. And it's not all, only about answers. It's also about perceptions because sure. one of my favorite showrunners to follow on Twitter is Terry Metalis, who's the showrunner for 12 Monkeys. And he had a situation this season where the fans didn't really care for the direction of the female protagonist, Cassie Rayleigh, who was being a little bit mean to the male protagonist. <laughs> and he said, well, no, it's there's a reason behind it. And on social media, he was defending Cassie as to the way she was acting. And that's fine. He actually has an argument that does develop as you watch more episodes. But at the time, at the beginning of the season, it really was a matter of the fans having that perception. And you couldn't deny it, even if they were wrong or even if they would be proven wrong later. It's still there. The fans' perception of it has to be left as it is. You can't really change it or influence it behind the scenes, the story has to be what is driving that opinion. Yeah, Mike, but that's the whole, you feel how you feel. <laughs> and who am I to tell you your feel? I, I mean, I watch that show and look, we talk all the time about 12 Monkeys because I need you to explain certain <laughs> things to me. And you really do have a good grasp on time travel. But that said, with the 12 Monkeys issue that you're referring to, how can you not understand how Cassie got to be the way she was. Of course she was harder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, things had happened in the last eight or nine months or whatever it was. I'm but. glad you feel that way. Because <laughs> I did come to that conclusion as well, but it took some people a little while to get there. And he was almost defensive about it on social media. He thought that people were being a bit misogynist about it, which is fine. That's an opinion. But it creates a little bit of contention between <laughs> the viewers and the showrunner. And technically, just like a novel, if you're reading a novel and you interpret it differently than the author, you, the author doesn't get to come in and say, no, this is what I really meant when I wrote that. And neither should a television artist either. Right. Now, of course, I don't read anymore, which is ironic being an <laughs> English teacher. But I don't know. Do writers do that? Maybe they do. And we just aren't following them on social media. <laughs> right. Although... People that have all that time to be on social media perhaps aren't reading enough. So who knows? <laughs> I'm certainly not reading enough. But you mentioned, and you didn't use the A word, but they're apologizing for creative decisions they've made. And that's a problem. Okay. Explaining something is one thing. Apologizing it. I, I just, What's an example of someone who's apologizing to the fans for something they did? Well, certainly Jason Rothenberg with The Hundred is probably the most prominent example that we know about. And, and certainly I would be shocked if any of our listeners aren't aware of that situation. Well, should we explain it? Or has the statute of limitations on that spoiler <laughs> expired? I would say so. Just in brief, Jason Rothenberg had to apologize. Now, he did actually take a while to get to that point where he did apologize. But the fans were irate when a character was killed off in that show who happened to be a lesbian. 
And there's a long history in television going back, especially to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where that is a device to motivate the main character. The death is used to motivate the main character and it devalues the relationship. And I think that's what a lot of the people in the LGBTQ community had a problem with. But you're right. Jason Rothenberg did have to eventually relent and apologize for that decision. Right. Now, at least as much as I followed, and admittedly, after a while, I can only follow so much. Look, I'm not a big social media follower. In fact, if I wasn't podcasting and writing reviews for Den of Geek, I probably wouldn't follow it much at all. Uh Yeah. But that said, it seemed that the narrative changed. Well, it's not that you killed the character, it's how you killed the character. And then it wasn't that you killed the character, it was that we were lied to. And then we see Jason Rothenberg back again explaining. Now, one of the more recent ones that I came across, the Walking Dead showrunner apologizing for the season six finale, which apparently blew up the Internet as well. And and obviously neither of us follow the Walking Dead. But because we've been following this issue, it certainly entered our sphere of awareness. Right. And, you know, just to quote from his apology tour, a character you love and are going to miss is dead. And we gave you a few extra months to hope to not grieve. Is there uncertainty? Yes. But that was kind of the idea. And that's, I guess, where I stand on all of this. It's that with all of this furor, all of these showrunners coming on and apologizing and all the, it seems to me what's going to happen is the tension that we always feel when we watch these shows is really going to be gone because you're going to look at certain characters and like, well, they're not going to die because they don't want to deal with the internet blowing up if that character dies. So we don't need to worry about that. Yeah. And I think that's probably going to be far and few between, but I assume you're specifically referring to LGBT characters. (laughs) Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think it could be any character. I mean, that's a whole other issue, the the shipping angle, which obviously we talked about in an episode uh, a few months back, but that's even a different issue. I mean, you still can have characters, I think, that fans have really latched on to. And, and, and of course, that's the beauty of a show like Game of Thrones. And from my perspective, The 100, that nobody's safe. I mean, maybe Eliza Taylor's safe in The 100, but <laughs> nobody's safe in Game of Thrones unless you've read the books. Exactly. No. Well, even then sometimes. But, but yeah, you're right. And the social media impact that you're referring to is specifically with folks who are rabid fans, the engaged fans, the ones that they refer to when they say fandom. And usually that has a more obsessive connotation. And so it doesn't necessarily affect the entire audience, but rather those on social media. And so there is a certain aspect of people's expectations that come into play, but there's also a positive side to it. For example, live tweeting is becoming more and more important with the ratings And of course, it's not just a means of fostering community anymore, although it seems to be growing and growing to the point where now you and I and some of our podcasting friends now have showrunners who have actually joined the Facebook groups that we started for the fandom, which is a very unique connection that goes beyond Twitter because usually it was confined to Twitter. So live tweeting being tied into ratings and increased social engagement with Facebook, which is less problematic in my view, 
is kind of a new twist that hasn't been addressed in the uproar about fandom being broken. And I'm not sure that's good. And again, I'm sometimes not that great with analogies, but I coached at the high school level for a number of years, and I made it a point to never get close to the parents. Okay. Because it was really a no-win situation for me because at any given time, half the parents thought I was a genius. The other half thought I was an idiot. (laughs) And it all boiled down to how they saw me meeting their and their child's needs. And once I wasn't meeting their child's needs in their eyes, then I'm an idiot. And that's my fear with the showrunners joining Facebook groups, you know, hobnobbing with the fans, if you will. It just seems to me that there should be a distance. I understand. Times change. There's no going back, I think, at this point. So it is what it is, but I don't like it. Well, I think what it has to come with is a caveat. People need to have training. I think showrunners should go through mandatory training before they engage on social media that way, because some people do it very well. A great example is Joe Malozzi for Dark Matter. The guy has a daily blog. He writes in it every day. You get to see pre-production, post-production, every part of the process along the way. And he's just a conduit for that information going out. Now, does he respond to fans on social media? Sure. But mostly he's just the deliverer of information. And he does a great job with that for Dark Matter. So you can actually have engagement without, and of course, when we mentioned Simon Barry's the same way, without always explaining your process or explaining your decision-making process, I should say. Right. Because you mentioned explaining your process. To me, that's fascinating. And obviously, yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> right. We talked about, well, how did you create those helicopters or how did you do that scene or you know things like that? And to me, that's great. But as you said, it's almost as if they have to be trained to do that. And don't answer questions that start with the word why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But really, it boils down to, in the last couple of weeks, even though we came up with this topic of discussion before these came out, a series of articles that talked about fandom being broken. And I'm not sure where exactly it originated, but one of the articles that we came across first was from AV Club. And I just want to read a little piece of that article to start off our discussion as well or continue it. It's not always easy to put our trust into filmmakers or novelists or TV showrunners. Trailers and news bites and internet punditry make it easier than ever to abandon that trust at the merest provocation, be it tweaked superhero costumes, rumors of characters engaging in the wrong romantic relationship, quote unquote, or a lifelong fear of women coming to a boil. Fandom offers the comfort of familiarity and for some fans, absolute certainty. But isn't it more exciting when art or even just pop culture doesn't settle for asking how you feel? So I think the writer of that article very much agrees with the sentiments that we've been discussing here. Yeah. And, you know, the first line from that passage you read, it's not always easy to put our trust into filmmakers or TV showrunners. And that takes me back to part of the issue with Jason Rothenberg, that as I recall, it had to do with being led on that the character of Lexa would be around for the finale. And then, of course, when she was killed in episode seven, I think it was, the uproar started. Now, as it turned out, she wasn't the finale. Yeah, he wasn't lying about that. (laughs) So now one of the other articles that we ran across was from Birth Movies Death, 
And the writer says, in a lot of ways, fandom has always been a powder keg just waiting for the right moment to explode. And that moment is the ubiquity of social media. Twitter is the match that has been touched to this powder keg. And all of a sudden, the uglier parts of fandom, the entitlement, the demands, the frankly poor understanding of how drama and storytelling work have blown up. And that is just a beautiful way of putting how I feel. Exactly. And what was so great about it is that after those articles had been around for a while, Blaster put out an article that said, fandom is not broken. But I pulled a quote out of this article that still agrees with some of what we said, even though they are in defense of the fans. So it says, for every subreddit dedicated to sending a journalist death threats because they reported a video game's delayed release, there are countless more fans just thinking critically about the things they love. And for every creator who quits Twitter or mistakes a fan space as their own, there are infinitely more who learn from their fans and make better content as a result. So obviously this writer was arguing for the fact that showrunners perhaps should listen to their fans. But at the same time, I think it makes a good argument for careful use of social media by the showrunners and not placing all of the blame on just one group the fans or the showrunners, because there's equal amounts of responsibility. And I think obviously the biggest problem is that everybody, especially the fans, has instantaneous, far-reaching access, not only to other fans, but the cast and crew of the show. And are the creative minds behind the shows giving in too quickly to the whims and demands of really what truthfully amount to a vocal minority? I mean, somebody like me and I would say I'm probably in the majority for most shows. I just watch the show, maybe talk about it with a friend, and then that's it. Yeah, water cooler talk. <laughs> right. I'm not following social media. Again, unless it's a show, I'm podcasting. But it's right. It's the squeaky wheel getting the grease. And that's not necessarily the correct response. So it's that's totally true. And it seems that uh, the vast majority of social media discussion anyway revolves around shipping angles. So, you know, that actually was discussed in a previous Sci-Fi Fidelity, but people know it's widely agreed that the term shipping originated during the X-Files run when home internet availability exploded onto the scene around 1994, and Mulder and Scully were the object of that, of course. But back in the early days when we were still using bulletin boards rather than Twitter and Facebook, individuals associated with the show were nowhere to be found. So it was a fan-to-fan -fan type of interaction. Right. You didn't see Chris Carter responding uh, <laughs> on Usenet via his Prodigy account. <laughs> yeah. AOL uh, <laughs> Instant Messenger. CompuServe. <laughs> That's right. If you know those names... You're old. You're old. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, do the networks pay too much or not enough attention to social media buzz about their shows? And... Again, as I said at the top of this discussion, I understand you have to pay the bills. I get it. And in fact, there are a number of shows that we love that you and I are both quite concerned about the low number of viewers for shows that are critically acclaimed. Well, and that's where social media has its strengths. There are definite weaknesses that we've pointed out, but the fact that social media is now becoming important, especially Twitter, for fan engagement and the networks are definitely paying attention to that, we've seen evidence of it. I mean, Simon Barry says that Continuum got its fourth season 
specifically because of the clamor of the fans using the hashtag renew continuum. And now every show does it, even shows that don't deserve it have fans out there that are hashtagging this and that and even starting up like change.org petitions to save their show or have Netflix take it over or whatever. And certain movements like that are actually successful. And I'm not sure what the magic formula is for that. It seems to be coming up with something new and eye-catching that engages the most fans such that the network has to stand and pay attention. Well, right. And the dynamics of the entertainment world have, of course, changed. I mean, when you take a look at a show like Joss Whedon's Dollhouse, which got canceled after its first season, and then when DVD sales came out, it it was through the roof and they thought, well, maybe we do have something here. And they gave it a second season. Another Whedon show, Firefly, the same thing, got canceled. DVD sales were strong. They at least got a movie to tie things up. So the dynamic is different now. Fans have... You know, they don't necessarily have to respond with their wallets now. That's right. It's a lot more about how they interact with each other and how they interact with the show itself, especially since a lot of shows are going beyond the television screen and having second screen content. And that becomes important, too. But it comes down to a couple of different questions. First of all, I think we agree on the first question. How much input should fans have? And I think you and I both agree zero. Right. Right. But should showrunners temper their involvement, not only on social media, but on fan podcasts as well? And I think the answer is yes to social media, not necessarily with podcasts, though, because I feel like that falls into the same territory as legitimate interviews coming from web outfits. As a Right. Thing. You mean giving interviews on podcasts, things like that? Yeah. Yeah. Because I do think they should temper their involvement on social media, but... I do like the fact that they are going after the little guy. You and I have done some interviews with showrunners and actors from our favorite shows, even as humble of a podcast as we've been in charge of. So that obviously is fun for us. And I think fun for our listeners as well, but maybe it should be confined to interviews because that's where it originally came from. That's how we got the information about why certain decisions were made about characters and what the process was behind the making of the show. And maybe it should stay with journalism rather than the mixing pot of Twitter. Right. And at the end of the day, let the art speak for itself. And so the way we're flipping the sci-fi fidelity podcast these days is now we're going to switch over to our show discussions, but instead of nailing it down to one show and then just kind of, I guess I felt like we were doing it a bit aimlessly in the past. So really now it's going to be a question of what are we reviewing for Den of Geek and what are we watching on television? So why don't you start, Dave? All right. Well, I'm covering a show called Outcast that debuted on June 3rd for Den of Geek, and you can read my reviews there. The second episode is going to air Friday night, the 10th of June. And I don't want to say it's a new twist on the traditional demonic possession tale because there are some consistent elements that the listeners would know, but the production values, the acting are just so far superior to what you're used to. It's awesome. The other show I'm covering is Vikings, which is in its mid. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Season hiatus with Ram 10 episodes has been off for about a month and a half and the return for the second half of the season has not yet been announced though speculations out there that it's going to be sometime in July. But again, that's just speculation. But what I'm really looking forward to is we're going to have to deal with this big time jump that occurred in the last episode. Now, so far, both outcast and Vikings you've reviewed very positively, correct? Absolutely. So that's kind of fun. Well, I mean, it's definitely understandable with Vikings because I was already watching that and already loving that when I started doing it for Den of Geek. Outcast, as you know, I'm not a big fan of horror. Uh, This is a show based on a comic by Robert Kirkman of The Walking Dead. So I had my doubts, but oh my gosh, this show is awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. I might have to check that out. And what are you watching? Well, you know, the one show that sometimes people have a hard time believing that I really love this show, it's Outlander, that Ronald D. Moore, who we all know from Battlestar Galactica, is the showrunner. He adapted the stories from Diana Gabaldon's novels. Yes, it's time travel. It's a love story at the end of the day. (laughs) But the more I watch it, the more I realize how much time travel implications really are at the core of the show because they are trying to change history and they've had little bits and pieces and there are little tidbits that pop up now and then you know i don't want to give too many spoilers away if you haven't watched it but paradoxes and things like that yeah and running across people that will say something like whoa is that a time traveler also (laughs) and then the person's gone i remember people kept trying to convince me of that even just when the books had come out, they said, oh, you would love it. You've got to read it. And I read the first one and got caught up in the bodice ripper angle and kind of poo-pooed it. Never got back to the novels because of that. But now that the TV show is out, I'm hearing the same thing. Yeah. There is time travel in there that you would enjoy. Well, the bodice ripping, when you can actually see it, that's <laughs> eh, kind of a plus. It's different from reading it. <laughs> exactly. Bear McCreary is doing the music. as he did for Battlestar Galactica. So enough said about that. It's on HBO. We've done a lot of uh, composer interviews, even ones that I did as bonus episodes. Wouldn't it be great if we could get Bear McCreary? Oh my gosh. (laughs) My gosh. So season two is coming to an end. The show's been renewed for two more seasons and they've basically been doing a book per season. There are eight books. She's working on the ninth. So who knows? The ratings have been going up rather than down. And that's against trend across the board. Well, that's really cool. I'll definitely have to check that one out. And it's funny because Dave and I both picked shows that neither of the other person watched. And this is why this new formula works a little bit better because the the old formula wouldn't allow us really to have a show that only one of us was watching. And Dave, I was going to talk about Wayward Pines as the show that I'm looking forward to watching, but 
I'm going to have a little surprise for you here in a minute. <laughs> but first, I want to tell you about what I'm reviewing, because right now I'm at the tail end of 12 Monkeys and just a stellar season. And I know we already talked about 12 Monkeys in Sci-Fi Fidelity, but it's just been so great, especially this past week where it was one of the best episodes I had ever seen of any television show with a Groundhog Day style episode where the day kept looping, which sounds kind of trite and it's been done before, but they did it in such a unique way that I had to give it a five-star review. So I'm very stingy with my five stars on Den of Geek and 12 Monkeys has gotten several over the course of seasons one and two. And then the other show I'll be reviewing starting on July 1st when it returns is Dark Matter, which is in its second season as well. Looking forward to reviewing that as well. I had kind of mixed reviews on that during season one, but it actually kind of grew on me with time so that I'm really looking forward to what's coming in the near future because it looks like the things that were happening in the season finale, which I will not reveal in case uh, you haven't watched that show yet, are going to make an immediate change for the show at large because it looks like they're going to be in some sort of prison and it's going to be kind of a prison breaky type feel to the show and scheming within the prison. So a very different flavor to Dark Matter. And I, I look forward to sharing some very favorable reviews. Right. Now that comes back July 1st. July 1st, along with Killjoys. Yeah. But the show that I'm watching currently, I was going to talk about Wayward Pines, and we did interview Charlie Clouser, the composer for that, as a bonus episode on Sci-Fi Fidelity. He was a great guy to talk to, and I've really enjoyed talking to composers. But as I was watching season two, the reason I wanted to talk about it was because Jason Patrick, who really took over as the main character because Matt Dillon left the show, it was kind of a dangerous prospect because they really are kind of reinventing it for a second season when it really could have stood as a one season show. And Jason Patrick has just been doing a really great job of it. So I was like, I really wanted to highlight that. But the problem is it has really been stale over the first two episodes. They just had the third episode this week. And I kind of decided, you know what? I'm not wild about the direction it's going. So I don't think I'm really want to highlight that as my main show. So what I did is, I followed some advice that I'd got from you, Dave, and from others, and watched Preacher. Nice. And boy, oh boy, was I blown away, because I thought, this will be good. I'll enjoy it, thinking it would be kind of a medium enthusiasm for the show. No, I love this show. And of course, for those of you who don't know, this is based on a comic as well, which is always kind of a bit of a red flag for me, because I'm not hugely into comics shows, but I was very much into Vertigo comics, which is a DC imprint when I was in college. And this is based on a Vertigo comic and Dominic Cooper plays the main character, Jesse Custer and Ruth Nega, who we enjoyed from agents of shield. It's funny because Dominic Cooper was an agent Carter and then <laughs> Ruth Nega was an agents of shield. It's kind of a yeah. juxtaposition there. She plays tulip. And then Joseph Gilgan plays Cassidy and just a really great cast. Everyone's likable. Everyone steals their scenes, especially Ruth Nega and, and Joseph Gilgan. They both really shine as supporting cast members. And we're only in the second episode. I believe uh, the third episode is coming up after this podcast comes out. But there were two weeks to wait in between episodes one and two. And a lot of buzz was built up after episode one. 
And I think word of mouth has really helped this show. Did you heard about it rather than chose to view it, correct? That's correct. And and what happened with me, as often happens with most of my genre shows, that you know I'm watching it in the family room. My wife's on the couch with her laptop, just doing whatever she's doing. And very often she ends up watching the show, asking questions. And when I first saw Preacher the first time, I thought, okay, it's pretty good, but I don't know that I'm going to add it to my schedule. And I get up to go to the kitchen and she's like, well, you're going to record the next one, aren't you? <laughs> I'm like, you liked it? She goes, oh my God, it was great. I might have to do the same because my wife is a big fan of Fargo and this definitely had that flavor to it, the Coen brothers, even though they kind of made fun of the Big Lebowski <laughs> in one of the episodes. But it feels like a mixture between Breaking Bad and Fargo, some supernatural elements thrown in. And it doesn't hold your hand, just like Fargo and Breaking Bad didn't hold your hand. Because, you know, we don't know what's Tulip's job that she wants Preacher to join in on. And, you know, what other supernatural creatures might be out there. And what's Jesse's past? What's up with his mysterious past with his father being shot in front of him? And just things like that. And even just plot points where you're just kind of like, okay, that's cool. But what does it mean? Like in episode two, when the Quincannon meat and power company shows up, just bulldozes somebody's house. And you're like, all right, what is this company up to? And, and what will we see in the future from this? And of course the flashback at the beginning of episode two as well, people who've read the comics say that the cowboy that we see in that scene is the saint of killers from the comic but not having read the comic, I enjoy him for just <laughs> what he is. Did you see episode two yet? I have not, no. Oh, you'll definitely enjoy it. It's not quite as good as episode one, but it definitely carries through. And the violence is at that level where it's just kind of humorous <laughs> rather than gory. Right. And what I find so fascinating about shows like Outcast and, of course, Preacher is that, you know, we almost have to lose the term anti-hero or, or come up with a better term it's almost you know the damaged protagonist yeah and in both of these cases supposedly it's a man of god yes that's dealing with evil yet they're borderline evil themselves right the vigilante aspect where they are trying yeah. to do good with a very bad power and doing great violence in order to enact the good that they want to see in the world Right. But as you said, compared to, say, a show like The Walking Dead, the blood and gore is at a minimum. You know, they, they use other devices and techniques to scare the heck out of you. Right. And this one, it's just like in Fargo. It's just kind of unexpected in the form that it takes and just unlikely, I guess you, you might say. And, you know, just the fact that the supernatural element seems to be widespread makes it more interesting. And fits with the comic feel of the show, which runs everywhere from the titles that show up really nice and big titles. And even when the, uh, the supernatural force that shows up on earth, when it's coming down to earth, you actually see the word Africa written across the continent, like a globe. So it makes it seem like it's straight off the page. But anyway, so there's a lot of shows that we're definitely looking forward to watching shows that we're watching now that have either just started finishing up their seasons as we prepare for the summer. And then there are shows that are just getting started. So 
I love that there's always something new starting that we can add to our schedule if there happens to be room. <laughs> yeah, and there's not going to be a lot of room. Thank goodness the summer's coming for you know people like, well, you are going to work in the summer. I'm not. <laughs> yes. So uh, summer can be a fun time, and, and certainly there are plenty of offerings in that vein. But one show or one set of shows that is off the air currently, but that ties into our interview that we'd like to share with you now, are Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, and Legends of Tomorrow, which seem to have a more heroic comic book feel than shows like Preacher <laughs> and Daredevil and Jessica Jones and things like that. But at the same time, the music reflects that, the heroic, the majesty of the characters that are in that show. So we wanted to talk to Blake Neely about his process and how he comes up with these superhero themes. And he's, of course, done scores for television and film, not just in the superhero vein. He's done music for Blind Spot, The Mentalist, uh, all kinds of different TV shows. And hopefully you guys have really latched onto some of those shows' theme songs, especially in the superhero vein. So let's take a listen to our interview that we had with him last week. And of course, that very recognizable theme song is from The Flash on the CW. And Dave and I are here today with the composer of not only that song, but also the soundtracks from all of DC's television ventures, including Arrow, Supergirl, and Legends of Tomorrow, not to mention a massive resume of music writing for television and film. We're pleased to welcome esteemed composer Blake Neely. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Very excited to talk about these great soundtracks. And I was very curious, when you're asked to do a soundtrack for a new superhero show, there's always like this majestic brass and percussion so where do you actually go for the inspiration, depending on the hero? Is it the powers themselves, or is it the personality of the character, or the mood of the show, or what? Yeah, it's kind of, it's the character itself. I think with Arrow, actually, when I first read the script and first started on Arrow, uh, which was the first of these big DC superheroes on TV, I said I wasn't going to use brass. I wasn't going to use typical, at that time, superhero sounds, but... You know, you get into it and you just realize that's just kind of the sound, this majestic, huge orchestral thing. You can add anything you want around it and to it, but it sort of becomes, it's comfortable to an audience. And it feels like superhero music in, in a weird way. But that's been from decades and decades of, of this type of music being scored. Uh, where I go is I just sit with the character for a while and think about what I want to paint the characters being when I set down to write the flashes I, I usually sit and write a long suite of music which incorporates a lot of themes that i might use later when i'm trying to get an idea um when i sat to do the one for the flash my idea wasn't the character itself it was the sound of propulsion and jet engines and things like that were kind of what the inspiration was and with arrow it started as all kinds of sounds you could maybe get from a bow and arrow, you know, like string sounds and plucked sounds and things like that. So it's just different with each time. And literally when I got to Legends of Tomorrow, we'd, I'd written themes for so many of the characters that were going to then be on the show that it was, okay, how do I tie them all together? So it wasn't one single character theme. It was how do I tie them all together and give it sort of an ensemble theme. Now, I mean, do, do you look at it like you have Oliver's theme 
No, I look at it as everything is connected to Oliver. I've been asked a lot, like, oh, you used this love theme on this scene. I'm like, no, it's not necessarily... You hear it as a love theme. I hear it as, like, his inner struggle theme. So I'm very specific where the themes are used and how they're used, but they always kind of relate back to Oliver. Even if it's Laurel's theme or or Felicity's theme, it all relates back to him because he's the central figure. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, well, could you walk us through the process from the time you're brought on board for a particular installment to the point at which you're given everything you can to the episode? Yeah, well, that's quick. When we first do a show, we do what's called the pilot episode, and that's before you know if the show is, is even going to ever make it to series. And you have about a month in that process to work on creating themes and before you get to they actually send me picture and then once they send me a locked cut it's like every episode of television i have a week turnaround so a week to watch it decide where music's going to go what music's going to do write each scene send it to the producers have them chime in and give me their notes and thoughts rewrite if necessary record it and that's a one week turnaround so i get the episode two weeks before you guys see it so two weeks before it airs, I then have a week, and then we mix it, and it airs. So it's it's a really fast turnaround, which is why it's really helpful for me to to establish themes, establish sounds, establish tones, and sort of a sonic atmosphere, because then I can turn to those and write quickly. Now, you mentioned bringing some of the sounds together for Legends of Tomorrow, but there's also all the crossovers between the shows is there some kind of interconnectedness between the soundtracks that if we listen closely we might be able to recognize or would that just come from you being the composer of all those shows i think that comes a lot from me being the composer for all shows i mean i have a certain way that i write no matter what and so that's probably going to come across in each show but when i found out that they were possibly going to spin off and even in season one of arrow there was talk of you know this could spin off to different characters different comic books i thought well there's got to be some kind of way of doing a connective tissue between all of them and i don't know if that's it's definitely not harmonically and in some ways it's instrumentation but i mean it's it's music you can literally mash up anything and and make it sound like it was supposed to go together so there's a little bit of a retrofit if you know what i mean like when when they finally said supergirl's going to cross over with flash this year like, well, that's cool. You know, they both use um, and you find the common denominator and cross them over like that. But what I love about those episodes is being able to combine and mash up the themes. That's it's a lot of fun. All right, now, for uh, television soundtracks, how much do you work with live musicians and how much is just digitally played by you via MIDI? Well, the first episode is always live i i always have an orchestra for the first of, of these all of these episodes arrow flash supergirl and then what happens is we get into series and usually and it has been the case on all of these shows they become super expensive and the budget for music is one of the first things to go so it becomes digital which i know is disappointing to fans to realize but it's all digital at this point and then, you know, there's a there's some live playing going on on top, whether it's percussion or soloist or a couple of seasons ago, we brought in a female vocal on Arrow. But mostly it's me, which is also a challenge because not only do I have to write it, I have to make it sound real in the time I have. But um, 
it's become a thing. I, th- I mean, it's become a particular sound because it's all all four shows are coming out of my digital equipment, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> and it's a lot easier for me to manipulate it that way too. Now, is part of the challenge knowing what a particular instrument can actually do in the real world? You know, not doing something digitally that a, a real violin really couldn't do. Well, that's particularly fun on something like the Flash making sometimes almost impossible music. For instance, there's there's some string phrases I've written that would literally be impossible to play because of how fast they're going, but that's kind of the fun because he's so fast. And there's ways to do it. You can you can play it slower and speed it up these days even if you record it live, but it really just I have no limits that way. I I like to keep the real instruments sounding as real as possible. But then I have no limits. If I want to put the trombones through a guitar amp and and put some kind of crazy distortion, I can because it's all right there and digitally manipulated. Now, uh, some of the digital sounds actually give the shows a very signature sound. I, the obvious choice being Arrow's high pitch glissando yeah. that happens at the end there. But and maybe also the running sounds in the Flash. But what would you say are the signature sounds like that that are symbolically represented in in supergirl and legends of tomorrow gosh i would say i don't know what is really the signature behind supergirl because it's not a particular sound device it's more a thematic device because that show was intentionally crafted to be like traditional orchestral and no homage to John Williams and his Superman scores type of sound. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. So it was supposed to be like that, so I couldn't really rely on, oh, here's a cool sound that's going to be her thing. But then when we lost the budget for the orchestra and it, we started, you know, you get into a series, you want to do one thing, you get into a series and you go, oh, it could be different. And it became this more modern hybrid heading even towards Man of Steel type of sound. So she's kind of developing... She, I even think of the shows as as a gender. She's <laughs> developing this different sound. She'll, there'll probably be something that's identified, but there's really the triplet feel, her horn theme, and then this. There's this one big percussion thing that I do. That that's kind of in my head how I keep them apart. You know, if I'm if I need to announce her on uh, on another show, that's kind of the toolbox I turn to. Whereas with Arrow, it's pretty easy to put in that glissando synth that you mentioned that happened to by the way i discovered as an accident so i love that the <laughs> signature sound for arrow was an accident but that's how sometimes it happens do you have any freeze rays or or uh <laughs> fireballs in legends of tomorrow oh man there's there, i mean there are terabytes and terabytes of sounds that i turn to but i <laughs> but i i'm constantly trying to come up with new ones because i think in modern scoring sometimes there's a an aversion to using melody and so in modern scoring you almost have to rely on things like a cool sound and as soon as you have that cool sound everyone else has that cool sound so (laughs) it's like now we got to go back to the paint factory well that's a great segue into my next question do you watch other television shows or movies and think about how you might have done things differently and are there any other composers whose work you admire or maybe are even inspired by? During the television season, I don't have really time to do anything. I have a week for each show, but you know, this year all those shows are going at once. So basically, I'm going to sleep this summer 
<laughs> and catch up on movies and TV. But I do still enjoy watching movies and TV shows as an audience. It's a tough thing when you know how some of these things are done in Hollywood. It's hard to make yourself forget about it when you go watch, you know, and not look for the green screen and not look for the music edit or where, you know, a cue's been used twice or something. Like, you know, all of those things that I know how it's done, even like story devices in the script. I try to just turn that off and go be entertained like everybody else. And occasionally I will find myself, it's more, more I would find myself going, wow, that is awesome. I'm going to reach out to him and, or her and say that was a great score. But, you know, there's a couple of times where you sit there and go, I don't think I would have done that. <laughs> um, but that's why they hire different ones of us because we all do it differently and it comes down to casting. That's not like a, I would do it better. It's just, but I hate when that happens because that means that I've been pulled out of the entertainment experience as an audience member. Yeah. Um, and two, there's hundreds of composers that I admire. I've been following them since I was eight years old, starting with John Williams. I got to work with Hans Zimmer closely. I got to work with James Newton Howard closely. Michael Kamen was my mentor. I have just tons of composers I respect and love. And we'll go see movies that I wouldn't normally see just because I've seen that these guys or women have scored them. That's very cool. Well, uh, thank you very much for talking to us today about the soundtracks for these great superhero shows and we can't wait to hear more as all of these shows are pretty much headed into additional seasons. So thanks very much for talking to us today. Sure. One, one thing, did you hear that next year they're talking about a four-way crossover? Oh, my goodness. Since Supergirl's going to the CW, they're talking about a, uh, a four-way crossover with um, Arrow, Flash, Legends, and Supergirl. So if that happens, that's going to be crazy. <laughs> yeah, for you, I'm sure, as well. <laughs> yeah. But well, why don't we talk again if if that's confirmed, and I'll I'll tell you how I did it if I survive. Okay. <laughs> that's right. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Dave. Okay, and yet again, Dave, it's just so great to talk to these composers. I think they're always very happy to talk about their craft, and their enthusiasm really comes across when you ask questions about decisions that they made and symbolic use of instrumentation. Right. And again, we're not questioning their decisions. It's just, you know, God, how did you come up with that? That's awesome. Yeah. I like that glissando at the end of Arrow's theme song that that was the one I brought up. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. And we hope we get to do a lot of those type of interviews. They actually come from a series that's on Den of Geek called The Fourth Wall, which seeks to specifically talk to creatives and show how the art is made that we see on television besides just from the directors and the actors and the showrunners. So it kind of ties in nicely with our main topic today. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this edition of sci-fi fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion, especially with this new format, but you can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as sci-fi fidelity. And in July, we'll be discussing another topic of interest as well as what shows we think are important or that we're covering for Den of Geek. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just email scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Hold up. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.